You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Easter is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope that didn't catch you by surprise this morning. It seemed kind of obvious, uh, but sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. You may be on that plane you think flying to San Francisco, and you hear on the pilot coming over the intercom saying, you know, this is a Flight 95 to Las Vegas. And you go, oh, I'm glad you said that. Uh, it's time to get off. No, we're here because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what this is all about. It seems obvious, but... Uh, George Orwell said that the uh, restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent people. But lest I congratulate myself too much on on that, uh, I want to readily admit to you that although I have known that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ for many years, what is all too often the case in my life is that I forget the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for my life. I just kind of lose track of the meaning of, of that fact uh, for myself. And so it's good to be together to be reminded that Jesus is alive. And, and Easter is a wonderful celebration that's filled with, with meaning. I mean, we've got amazing music uh, this morning. We've got uh, beautiful flowers. Many of us are gathered together with friends or with family, and we'll eat great food. There's a honey-baked ham. Of course, there are peeps on Easter. What could be more meaningful than peeps? You know, so there's so much meaning. But you and I understand that there's more than that, don't we? We know that it's about so much more. There's, there's a greater meaning to our gathering uh, than these things. Well, the ancient Israelites knew how to celebrate Throughout the ages, the Jews have been the people who have led us in partying. They really know how to throw a good party that goes back to the ancient days. The very first Israelite celebration is the Passover celebration. It's a great celebration. Now, if you've been worshiping with us the last six weeks, we've been talking about the Passover. Not just about the celebration and the meaning of the party, of the dinner, but the history behind it. Not just about the history behind it and what happened, what God did in ancient Israel, but the meaning behind the history. What is it, I want to know, about the Passover that is meaningful today? You know, for regular people, people like me, people like you. Well, there is a text of Scripture that invites us to take a celebration and enjoy it. But to find the deeper meaning beyond it. And I want to draw your attention to that passage of scripture this morning. It's Exodus chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. So if you brought a Bible, would you open up to that? Or there's a black book in the pew rack in front of you. You're welcome to take advantage of that. And you'll find if you turn to page 54, our text is there at the bottom. Exodus chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And as God's people, let's read his word aloud together. Jesus Christ delights in our worship and loves to hear our voices. So we'll read Exodus 15, 19 through 21. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his chariot drivers went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, 
took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. This is a simple affirmation, and I think it's as appropriate this morning as it was thousands of years ago. He has triumphed gloriously. Has he not? And it is this word, a lyric in a song that Miriam sings. She, as you know, is the sister of Moses. Interesting, she's referred to as a prophet here, Miriam. And this song that she begins to sing, we only get the first part of it here, is a song that recaps the history of the Passover, what God did. But, you know, if you've read to this point so far in the first 15 chapters of Exodus, actually, you already know the history of the Passover because it's been given to us in narrative form. And you know the history. You know how uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt was literally killing the Israelites through slavery and how they cried out to God and how God heard their cries and responded and how there were ten plagues and how the tenth of them uh, was Passover. God protected every family that had this strange meal. They ate lamb and they took the blood from the dinner and they put it on the doorposts and God passed over them. And you know about how they fled the Egyptians, pressed up against the Red Sea. They thought they were sure to die because one of the greatest powers on earth had sent his cavalry, the chariots and the horses, in pursuit. And yet God blew a wind upon the sea and parted it. And you know how then that cavalry met its destruction in the waters of the Red Sea. And so we would know all that. Because it had been given to us in narrative form, we would furthermore know all that because if you read the beginning of Exodus, the first 18 verses, you find that Moses has already sung this song. Moses has sung the song. It's actually Moses' song. And now, as soon as he stops singing, we read, Miriam takes it up herself. So it's kind of like Miriam is a cover artist, right? She's got Moses' song. She goes, okay, that's good. Now it's mine. I'm going to take it. And she starts singing this song. And she gets into the song word for word the way that Moses sang it, except for one word. She tampers with one word. See, where Moses had said, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, his sister changes. And she says, sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. See, what Moses had said, I will sing. But Miriam, she grabs a tambourine, she grabs, we read, all the women of Israel, and they start dancing, and she says, sing to the Lord. It may be Moses' song. It may be Moses' testimony, but she's taken Moses' testimony and turned it into an invitation. And she said, now you sing. You make it your song. This is your experience as well, is it not? Can it not be? Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, she says. And if they were to continue singing, the next verse would ask them to articulate the testimony of Moses on their own lips this time. They would be saying, they would be affirming or confessing that 
This Lord is my strength. Not just Moses. This is 15.2. Uh, the Lord is my might. Not just Miriam's. He's mine. The Lord is my salvation. And he is my God. Do you see that invitation to take a celebration? I mean, Miriam knows generation after generation is going to enjoy this feast. They're going to sing this song and she wants them to make it their own. He has triumphed gloriously. Friends, if this is true of the Passover when God would set Israel free from slavery, how much more true is this when God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, would set all of creation free from the burden of sin and death. But we're still left with the question, what is the meaning of this for us? Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened a long time ago. And we live here in Seattle. You know, times are different. We carry around iPhones and Blackberries, and our life is, works at a pace that theirs didn't. And what's the relevance to us of that resurrection? Well, I think if we're going to answer that question, we have got to give our attention to a question Jesus Christ asked when he walked the face of this earth. Jesus Christ asked a very pointed and significant question of his contemporaries. One day he was gathered with some religious leaders who did not always agree with Jesus, by the way. Many people did not. But as they peppered him with questions, he says, let me ask you one. One thing I, I, I ask of you. And here's the question. What do you think of the Messiah? It's simple. But notice what he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask about their belief system. He doesn't ask about their morality. Have you been good recently? Right? He doesn't ask about their piety. Are you practicing? He asks nothing about them. He asks only what they think of him. What do you think? Of the Messiah. Now, you and I have opinions about a lot of people in life. I mean, if you take Dave's invitation and join us for fellowship after this service, then you have an opportunity to ask questions. What do you think about Barack Obama or uh, John Boehner or J.K. Rowling or Justin Bieber, right? And, you know, we've all got opinions about some of these people, at least, and we can share them. But... What do you think your opinion of those people will matter a hundred years from now? The people in the news today. But if a tenth of what is said about Jesus is true, if a tenth of what Jesus says about himself is true, if a tenth of what two billion people on the planet confess this Easter Sunday is true, and this question is the most important question that confronts each and every one of us. What do you think about the Messiah? Well, I, I like the way um, New England, 20th century New England professor and pastor Terry Fulham frames this. He says, if you want to get to know anybody, the, the most natural thing to do is to ask their friends about him. You know, the people who knew him best. And yet, if you want to be unbiased, uh, if you want to be sort of balanced, then you would do well also to seek out his critics. And ask what they say. What do his opponents say about him? So I want to give you a real quick montage. And I'd like to begin with his opponents. What do the opponents, the critics of Jesus say in answer to the question, what do you think of the Messiah? 
Well, some of the pious people of his day, the religious leaders, said this about him. With scorn, this fellow welcomes sinners. Now, isn't that interesting? That one of the worst things they could say about Jesus is he welcomes sinners. Already the gospel is being preached. Similarly, other religious leaders, when Jesus was stretched out on the cross, they tried to add insult to injury as he hangs there and dies, and they said, well, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And isn't that true in a way as well? For he will not save himself because he has come to save all. And then Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in that region, tries him, and he has to render his verdict in this way. I find no guilt in him. I find no case against him. Judas, Jesus' betrayer, would finally come to the point where he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. A thief on the cross beside Jesus would look over and say, this man has done nothing wrong. There was a Roman soldier who had been among those nailing the nails into Jesus' wrist. They watched him writhe in agony and they heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And one of these soldiers, as Jesus breathed his last breath for us, looked up and said, truly, this man is the Son of God. One of his opponents. Uh, Jewish authorities at that time who were threatened by Jesus' resurrection engaged in a conspiracy. Some paid some of these same soldiers to claim that they had fallen asleep in the night and that his disciples had come to steal the body. They acknowledged that the tomb was empty and had to come up with some kind of an explanation. All of these opponents of Jesus give testimony to the matchless grace of God in Jesus Christ, that he had no guilt of his own for which to die, that he came to welcome and to give his life for sinners, and that his tomb was empty on Easter Sunday. What then do his friends say of the Messiah? Well, of course, the story begins with John the Baptist. He eats locusts, so you may not care what he has to say about Jesus, but nevertheless, he looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The fisherman Peter, who seemed only to open his mouth to change feet, had this to say about Jesus. He got it right once, at least you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he claims. Mary Magdalene, first witness to the empty tomb and the risen Savior, the first evangelist of the church, runs to the disciples and she says, I have seen the Lord. He's alive. And the great... Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, great rabbi in the first century, persecutor of the followers of Jesus Christ, breathed fire against them. One day on his way to Damascus along the road is met by the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he falls on his knees and he comes to faith in Jesus Christ and they change his name to Paul, St. Paul, the author of so much of the New Testament. And he would say... Of Jesus, he has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. What if we asked the Apostle John what he thinks of the Messiah? I think John would say, Would you close your eyes for a minute? And would you carry your imaginations up into the very courtyards of heaven? There, visualize a throne, a great throne. Surrounded by a sea of angels, a heavenly chorus, 
And on that throne sits the, the risen Jesus Christ, my friend, our friend. And they hear their music as they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. He has triumphed gloriously. Well, even his enemies, even his friends, all testify to the grace of Jesus Christ, to the meaning of the resurrection, but we still are left with the question, what does it mean for us? See, we can't leave it there. Because Miriam tells us there is a song for us to sing in this celebration as well. We're not asked to sing Moses' song. We're not asked to have a faith that rests upon the convictions of other people. We are asked to meet Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, ourselves. For to know the one who triumphs gloriously is to know him personally, ourselves. So, let us finally hear the words of Jesus answering his own question. What does Jesus say about himself? And I invite you this morning to, if you can, block out distractions and try to hear these as words spoken directly to you. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life, that you might have life, and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I come so that my joy might be in you, and so that your joy might be complete. Jesus says, I have come to give you peace. My peace, my peace, I give to you. See, life, joy, and peace. I can't think of three things in all the world that I would rather have, nor that I need more than those. I can't think of three things in all the world that the world itself needs than life and joy and peace. And yet here they are. These are the very things that Jesus Christ has come to give. To offer all creation, but to offer you this morning. Let me close with an encouragement. I'm going to adapt the words of a politician and say to you, never waste a celebration. See, what Miriam, what Miriam is, is teaching us is that the God who triumphed gloriously in the Exodus would continue to triumph gloriously. He has triumphed gloriously on Easter morning. He will continue to triumph gloriously. He wishes to triumph gloriously in your life and in mine today. God stooped from heaven to take on our humanity. He set the curse of sin and death deep within his own heart. He broke the power of the grave and rose on high to heaven so that he might send the Spirit of God upon us. So through His Holy Spirit, Jesus is alive and present in this room right now. We can't see Him with our eyes, but He's as close to you as the person on your right or on your left. And He's not asking, what kind of a person have you been? He's not asking, do you promise to be a good one in the future? He's not asking you to become a Presbyterian 
I might, but he's not. <laughs> he's asking you, will you receive my life, my joy, and my peace? Because I, I know what you're going through, and I want to triumph in you and through you today. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we not, need not raise our voices to be heard by you this morning. You know our thoughts. You hear all that's in our hearts. The pain together with the joy. Our work is indeed today simply to open our hands, open our minds, our hearts, and our souls to receive the gift that you have given us with gratitude and to say you have triumphed gloriously. Thank you that you know that we are a people who wander through the wilderness. Life is not for us during this season an easy thing. But that you want to journey with us, beside us, and within us. Thank you for this gift. We thank you for the privilege of gathering just this morning. This is this community that's here. That by your spirit, you can raise us into the courts of heaven. That we might sing praises to you. That we might sing of the King of Kings who is exalted above all else because he offered himself freely to us in love and has been risen from the dead. And someday soon we will see you face to face. Enjoy our worship, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray this prayer. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.